chapter 6, verse 1. Some of the sons of prophets said to Elisha, Look, the place where we meet with you is too cramped for us. Let's go to the Jordan. Each of us will get a log from there, and we will build a meeting place for ourselves there. He said, Go. So they said, Look, we're getting so numerous, we're running out of space. Let's build a lodge and have a guild. Okay? And so this shows you that, remember, back under Elijah, the prophets were being exterminated left and right to the point that a hundred of them were being hid in caves. And now it's at least become peaceful towards the prophets that they have been able to grow in such a number that they need to expand their territory. They need to expand their lodging. This also shows you that a lot of them seem to be living and lodging together. And there might be this idea that if you're a prophet, you're leaving your family behind and you're, you're joining this. Yet, at other times, we've seen prophets who are married with kids. So there seems to be a group that are without kids and without wives and a group that have them. So they want to build a bigger lodge. So Elisha gives them permission for this. So he went with them. So one, one of them said, please come along with your servants. He replied, all right, I'll come. So he went with them. And when they arrived at the Jordan, they started cutting down trees. As one of them was felling a log, the axe had dropped off into the water. And he shouted, Oh no, my master, it was borrowed. And the prophet asked him, Where did it drop in? Now, you're thinking like, Okay, this isn't that big of a deal. Just go to Home Depot and buy another one for like 10 bucks. Okay, it's a little inconvenient, but not that big of a deal. This isn't warranting like a miracle. But remember, in the ancient world, everything is expensive and rare. Iron, we're in the Iron Age, or we're just coming out of the Iron Age. And iron is extremely expensive. Okay, the equivalent of this is this guy cannot afford his own iron accent. Notice that he's already borrowed it from somebody else. So he doesn't have the money to buy an accent. He has to borrow it. And now that he's lost the accent, he didn't have the money to buy one to begin with, let alone to pay for one. This would be the equivalent of you like saying, I can't work and make money unless I have a work truck. But I can't afford a work truck until I have a job and make money. So you borrow your friend's work truck, and then you accidentally like drive it off into a ravine and like it blows up. And now you're really freaking out because you're like, I didn't have the, the twenty five to thirty to thirty five thousand dollars to buy a work truck to begin with, let alone now to pay my friend for his work truck, and I don't even have a job to make money for that because I don't have a work truck. This is you'd be freaking out about what's going to happen here. That's the equivalent of what's happening here. So this is basically what's going to happen is if he does have a family he and his family are going to be sold into slavery now to pay for this debt. And so this is his slavery that's coming around the corner now. And Elisha is going to step in. So he says, where did it drop in? And when he showed him the spot, Elisha cut off of a branch, threw it at that spot, and made the axe head flow. And he said, lift it out. And so he reached out with his hand and grabbed it. So he literally transfers the floating properties of the stick to the iron axe head so it would <laughs> float up. And in this way, it seems very insignificant to us. It's just an axe head. But for this man, it's not going into slavery. It's not going into slavery. And so knows how we are having healings 
and we're having people being freed from bondage and debts. So the widow who had the sons, who's going to go into slavery, her foil, this is why the prophets will come along and say a day will come when a prophet will come and he will heal the blind and heal the sick and set the captives free from slavery and debts. And it's pointing towards Jesus. And what Elisha is doing here, Jesus will do it to a greater extent and a more national and even global extent as we read through the prophets. Verse 8 of chapter 6. The king of Syria was at war with Israel, and he consulted his advisors and said, Invade at such and such a place. But the prophets sent the message to the king of Israel, Make sure that you don't pass through this place, because Syria is invading there. So the king of Israel sent a message to that place, and the prophet had pointed out, warning it to be on this guard. This happened on several occasions. So the king of Aram, or Syria, wants to attack Israel. And the prophet basically tells the king, hey, he's going to get you here, move somewhere else. So then Aram goes there, and there's no Israel there. There's no army or anything. So he says, oh, we just learned that the Israelite army is over here. And Elisha says, hey, they're, over, they're going to attack you there now. Move. And they keep moving. And so it's like whack-a-mole, but he misses every single time. Because Elisha sees into the spiritual realm. He knows he's there in spirit hearing the king talking of Aram. And he's able to warn the king of Israel. All this is to show the immoral, ungodly king of Israel that Yahweh truly is God. And the idea is if Naaman could get it within a couple of hours, why can't you get it? So he gives him warnings. His information is so accurate that the king of Aram immediately begins to suspect a traitor among himself. Verse 11. This made the king of Syria upset. So he summoned his advisors and said to them, not one of us must be helping the king of Israel. Sorry, one of us must be helping the king of Israel. One of his advisors said, no, my master, O king, the prophet Elisha, who lives in Israel, keeps telling the king of Israel the things that you say in the bedroom. Now notice Once again, the servants know more than the leaders. You have the servant girl who is more wise than Naaman. His own servant has better logic than Naaman. Now we have the servants of the king who seem to know more what's going on than the king of Syria does. And so it's showing that these people of great power are becoming, they're just arrogant, they're prideful, and they don't really have wisdom at all. The king ordered, go out and go. Find out where he is so I can send some of the men to capture him. The king was told he is in Dothan. So the king doesn't even know where Elisha is. His servants have to tell him. The, the, servants have, the king has all these spies and networks and little birdies everywhere giving him all this information, and yet he has no idea what's really going on in the land. And he's shown to be ignorant. The prophets, so he sent horses and chariots there, along with a good-sized army, and they arrived during the night and surrounded the city. So he sends an entire army full of horses and chariots to kill an old man in a city that is not protected at all because it's not a fort. It's not a military city, and it's not a city of great wealth and power. So Elisha is up against the greatest army of horse and chariots. 
The prophet's attendant got up early in the morning. This is a different attendant than Gehazi. When he went outside, there was an army surrounding the city along with horses and chariots. He said to Elisha, Oh no, my master, what will we do? He replied, Don't be afraid, for our sight outnumbers them. And you can almost hear the servant saying, What? <laughs> you old senile man. What the heck are you talking about? It's just you and I with a bunch of poor people in this city. Then Elisha prayed, O Yahweh, open his eyes so he can see. And Yahweh opened the servant's eyes, and he saw that the hill was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So notice we talked about this, that the prophets considered the horse and chariots of Yahweh. And in a way, he kind of commands the heavenly army of God. Now, God technically does it, but there's a sense of co-partnership here because he's a part of the divine counsel of Yahweh. And so what he has been able to see all along is that he is surrounded by horses and chariots. What God kind of almost wonders you, like, how often can he see this? He seems to be seeing a lot of things all the time. Is this like a 24-7 for him, that the veil between the spiritual realm and the earthly is just completely rendered and gone all the time? Or does it come at strategic key moments? I have no idea. But he seems to be so confident of this ability that he either knows it'll come at the right time or he always has the ability to see this stuff. And so he sees an entire army of God's heavenly Elohim and his heavenly angels and his chariots. And Elisha's servant's eyes are opened up to this. This gives a whole new meaning to spiritual warfare. If we take these, we take these stories in the Bible seriously, we have to understand that exists even now for us. We have no idea what is in this room with us in another dimension and what is happening. Then, as they approached him, Elisha prayed to Yahweh, strike these people with blindness, and Yahweh struck them with blindness as Elisha, Elisha requested. And Elisha said to them, this is not the right road or your city. Follow me, and I will lead you to the man that you're looking for. He led them to Samaria. So he blinds physically the Syrians. So he's showing that he has greater wisdom because he's able to see things that people can't see. Yet the Syrians who are pagans are more blind than anybody else, and they're struck with blindness. And then he says, this is not the man that you're looking for. And that always reminds me of Obi-Wan Kenobi. He's like, these are not the droids that you're looking for. And like Star Wars, like, <laughs> he is the superior Jedi with all the paganism. And then he leads them. Can you imagine this? This army with hundreds of thousands of chariots, horsemen, foot soldiers, all combined. And there's this old guy leading them. And they're all blind. So they're like holding on to each other. Do they leave their chariots behind? Or they're just like, almost like it's like hand on hand on hand, just following a long line all the way to Samaria, thinking that they're going to be led to the guy that they want. Verse 20, when they had entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Yahweh, open their eyes so they can see. And Yahweh opened their eyes and they saw that they were in the middle of Samaria. And when the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, shall I strike them down with my master? So they open their eyes and they realize they're in the heart of Samaria, completely surrounded by the Israelite army. Their tables have turned completely. 
Now, the, the, the English doesn't quite communicate this, but the, the, the tenses of the verbs here and the, the, the structure here of the king of Israel, it's almost like he's like a giddy little child in a candy store. And the idea that's being communicated here, he's like, oh, oh, oh my gosh, this is so awesome. Can I kill them, please? Can I kill them? That's the kind of idea that's being here. Like, and it's actually intentionally trying to demean him like a little kid. He has no idea what's going on. All he sees is enemies here and he wants to kill them. And it's another thing that shows that he's completely out of tune with what, what God is trying to do here. If God just wanted to kill them, he would have brought down fire from heaven right in the city of Elisha. But the fact that he blinds them and brings them here and opens up their eyes, there's a much bigger picture here than just killing the enemy. But the Israelite king is so narrow-minded and limited his understanding of what you do as a king that that's all he can think about. He's out of touch with the grace of God that is being shown here. Verse 22, Elisha replied, Do not strike them down. You did not capture them with your sword or bow, so what gives you the right to strike them down? This is not war. You did not capture them. They're unarmed. They're innocent. That's a huge rebuke. (laughs) What right do you have? You didn't do anything. It's like, oh, okay. Then he says, give them some food and water so that they can eat and drink and go back to their master. What? The army that's been attacking us for years, my father, his father, his father before him, have been attacked over and over and over again. They have taken our lands. They have massacred our people. And they're right here like unarmed pigeons ready for the slaughter. And then you rebuke me and tell me to feed them and have a banquet for them. But this is God. Because God is showing them compassion and mercy. And he's also trying to teach the king of Israel a thing about who God is. He's trying to teach the king of Israel. And this is also setting you up for the prophets and then Jesus. Because over and over and over again in the prophets, God is going to talk about a great banquet one day. And in this banquet, foreigners are going to come, Israelites are going to come, the lame, the blind, the people with skin diseases are all going to sit at the banquet table at God. And then if you're familiar with Jesus' parables, he tells a parable of inviting all the wealthy people and the religious leaders of Israel to his banquet as a king. And they're all like, I'm too busy. I'm washing my hair, all that kind of stuff. Okay, I got a Netflix show to binge tonight. And then so God sends out his messengers to the lame and the blind and the poor and the, the, the skin disease. And they're the ones that accept it and come in. And that's what he's showing. You have been rejecting the banquet of God, the king of Israel. I am now opening it up to other people, foreigners. And over and over again in this story, you see that the gospel is not restricted to anybody. Verse 23, So he threw a big banquet for them, and they ate and drank, and then he sent them back to their master, And after that, Syrian raiding parties, again, never invaded the land of Israel. Can you imagine the story they would go back with? Like, that's an incredible story. Like, we went to attack this old man in the town of Zanesville, and we were struck with blindness. And then we were led for miles, like, all holding each other's backs and hands in the city. And where the king of Israel could have wiped us out, the prophet single-handedly overcame and overpowered him in a rebuke and made him feed us. And allowed us to live and go back. 
And then you know when they're there who is also there listening to this story. Naaman, the Syrian general. These are raiding parties. Naaman would probably be there saying, oh yeah, I know about that God, and I know about that Elisha. And something about it all reinforced it with Ben-Adad that we're going to take a break for a while. We're going to take a break for a while. God has powerfully communicated his sovereignty and his grace to both the people of Israel and the people of Syria. And notice I told, I've told you this many, many, many times. There is no other God that is both sovereignly all-powerful over all things and as well as mercifully and relationally intimately involved in your life at the same time. And notice how many of these stories keep coupling those. Over and over again, you're seeing God's power demonstrated. But it's not just God coming down with a fist and just clobbering everybody and smashing the ground and like, Hoo-ah, I am God. There's power as well as compassion and mercy and grace coupled together over and over and over again for all people, foreigners, poor, skin diseases, pagans, men of power. Everybody is able to receive this. Now, just like the king of Israel, the lessons that they learn, the king of Syria, don't last very long. Unfortunately, men and women of great power don't really adopt the lessons of God. Pharaoh changes his mind for a while and says, I'll let the people go. Jeroboam says, oh God, please heal me, I'll repent. Ahab walks around sullen and repents. But then it doesn't take very long before their pride, their arrogance, their absolute power begins to corrupt them again, and they forget the lesson, they go back. And it's not impossible. That's what the whole book of Daniel is about, is that the, one of the most powerful men that has ever lived is broken down, Nebuchadnezzar II, and actually converts to Yahweh, an incredible act of faith. The Syrian king, or the Syrian general, Naaman, has done it. But those stories are very rare, very rare. And they usually, in the king, case of Nebuchadnezzar II, they had to be broken hard. It's not until the fifth chapter that he finally converts after incredible stories and things that he witnessed. Over and over again, we see that the more powerful you become, the more privileged, the more wealthy, the more entitled, the much harder it is to adopt these lessons and actually be changed. And they immediately go back to their comforts, their power, their corruption, and all that kind of stuff. 